Hello, I'm Phil Smith. Welcome to the first Editor's Podcast of 2021. So we're going to look at a selection of papers from the February issue, and hopefully this will tempt you to look further. So we're going to start with the Editor's Choice, which is Peripheral Nerve Blocks for Headache Disorders. And this is by uh, Louis Idravo of Leeds and colleagues. So, um, Garrett, what do you think of this paper? I, mean, I think this was uh, relatively straightforward as an editor's choice because it uh, it fulfills all the categories that we're keen on, on in practical neurology. It's dealing with an extremely common disorder, headache, obviously the most common cause of referral to a neurology clinic. And it provides a relatively straightforward and practical series of bits of advice that often aren't available elsewhere. And I think what they've done very nicely is that they've taken us through the background for the, the injections. I'm sure the one everyone's most familiar with uh, is the GON block, the greater occipital nerve block. Um, and they've talked about the practicalities of how to do it. And there's a very nice video on the website that you can link to from our practical neurology website. And uh, uh, broadly speaking, they take you through the practicalities of how to do it. But they also go through the evidence, and there's a reasonable amount of evidence. It's not quite as strong as one would, would like, but uh, it's very clear that it can be helpful in a range of different headache subtypes, and uh, they, they take you through that. They, they also um, give some illustrations of some of the less commonly used uh, injections, the lesser occipital nerve block, the LON block, and the supratrochlear nerve blocks. And I think for most people who don't, aren't in specialist headache practice, that's probably more to tell you about it than to teach you how to do it. But they produce a very nice practical paper with uh, good illustrations that are going, hopefully going to encourage people to explore this uh, therapeutic dimension, which is often very helpful for patients who've tried a whole load of stuff. Um, uh, for example, uh, patients who have not tolerated most of the medications uh, have an extremely severe run of attacks and you want to try and do something about it. And, and so it provides a nice opportunity to um, uh, use a different therapeutic modality that yeah. perhaps yeah. many neurologists would have previously referred to the pain clinic. And there's no particular reason why we shouldn't be beginning to take on this uh, useful therapeutic intervention. So yeah. I think it's a really nice um, and practical paper dealing with a very common condition all yeah, the I, well I, I agree with all of that i mean that it, it is something that that is that is needed really because increasingly increasingly we're doing this uh uh this practical procedure some great videos on the website actually i hope this will tempt people who, who we're all used to perhaps seeing our paper issue of practical neurology but this is one really where you have to view it on the website and look at these videos it, it, they're, they're really great and clear um there's just so much more we can do for headache these days with uh, uh this and botox and uh the monoclonals for migraine and so forth it, it's uh uh, you know, a really expanding field, but this is where neurologists can really practice and hone their their practical skills. So, yeah, I, I agree. This is uh, this is a worthy editor's choice paper, and which obviously brings us on to the second paper that we're going to discuss today, which is another very common problem, and it's it's actually prompted by a very frequent question that comes up in an epilepsy clinic, which is about memory. So, Phil. Um, 
You're going to tell us a little bit about this paper. Yeah, so this is from Sally Baxendale and Dominic Heaney in London. And it came about really through a conversation with Sally at the ILAE, where uh, we were talking about memory problems, which are, which are just so common. I mean, pe people with epilepsy so commonly reported. And I, I was frustrated, really, in not knowing how best to help people with this. And uh, she'd already thought through these very practical issues and uh, knew that actually most memory problems in epilepsy relate to the underlying reason for the epilepsy rather than to medications, which patients often attribute it to, or to the seizures themselves. And that when people understand that, then they can be they can be much more likely to accept it and uh, therefore make the changes that are necessary. Um, and that she says is you can there's never too early to to ask people about memory problems and, and to address this issue. And if it's left too late, then uh, people's lives are ruined, but they are not able to uh, accept very often the memory problems so easily. So she takes us through a way of uh, helping the person to um, understand that it's part of the epilepsy and then to manage it. Um, and I particularly like one of the examples she gives where we uh, have a, a, a where, where the patient might resist writing a shopping list, for example, because to do so would be to give in to the memory problem. But actually, if you think, what's the purpose of going to the shops? It's to bring home the right amount of shopping. Once you reframe it like that, then obviously you're going to make a list in order to, to help your life. So it's part of the acceptance process, just doing very practical things like making a list. So uh, th this this I think is a, it's it's a it's a great paper actually. It's really practical, um, and uh, I, I think that we're all going to be uh, encountering people a great deal with uh, this type of issue, and it'll be helpful also for patients to read it. I think. Yeah, I think I, I, absolutely. It's a, a very nice another very nice theme, which is sharing someone's experience and the strategies they've developed in a subspecialty area, um, and allowing us all in essence, to, um, to, to improve our clinical encounters on the back of their experience. So an extremely useful, practical paper. Um, yeah. So some, something maybe that uh, is going to be less widely used, but is great to have as a reference, is, is this one from Nicole Vormans in uh, Nijmegen. This is anesthesia and neuromuscular disorders, what the neurologist needs to know. Uh, how do you find this paper going? Well, so th I think this is another one of those things which is often prompted by a tricky question. Um, uh, you know, an anaesthetist rings you up and says, we've got such and such a chap who's got this uh, type of myopathy. What should we do? Is there anything different we should do? And clearly, if you um, haven't really thought about it or you are, are particularly okay, you think, well, where can I go to try and find out? And what they've done here is provide a very comprehensive review of the risks of anesthesia for patients with muscle disease, so that when you're faced with that awkward question from the anaesthetist, you're in a, a good position to be able to point them to an appropriate resource to take them in the right direction. But also from the point of view of when you're seeing the patients with muscle disease, actually being able to give them appropriate advice and warn them as to what to look out for and, and which agents to, to do, and actually sort of prime the patient to become an expert in their condition. And for these rare conditions, that's obviously a very helpful way to try and help manage it. 
So they've done a very nice uh, summary and, and they've also brought out the very few uh, but very alarming um, muscle diseases, in particular the one with the ryanodine receptors um, and uh, the ones that go on to can get the malignant hypothermia and what you should do and when you should think about those conditions. So I think it's a very useful background uh, reading for general neurologists who inevitably will be coming across patients with muscle disease and will be the first port of call for uh, anaesthetic colleagues and so on who might be interested. So I think another very practical paper, albeit probably one that you wouldn't use as much as the first two we've discussed, which I think are going to come up in clinical practice really quite frequently. Yeah, and a great table. I love this table one, which lists uh, individual neuromuscular conditions and the uh, anaesthetic advice that goes with each. I mean, each seems to start with avoid succinylcholine at all times, each of the advice. So that seems to be the main message. But the other big message I picked up from this is use the MDT, the MDT of uh, an anaesthetist, uh, a cardiologist, a chest physician, surgeon, and neurologist. So, you know, th it, this is a multidisciplinary management um, uh, problem. And uh, as you say, pick picking out those rare conditions with uh, serious side effects as well. So yeah, love, love the paper, it was good. And it is one of those illustrations where, you know, what's the point of making a diagnosis for a rare condition? It's so that a patient can actually get the best advice in circumstances that they may not necessarily be facing at the time when you make the diagnosis. So it, it, I think it's a very useful resource. And um, one I would anticipate, we won't remember the details of, but we'll merely remember it's there so we know to be able to find it and do things with it. Uh, talking of another, uh, well, it's not such a rare condition, but it can, something that perhaps we've only been thinking about more recently, which is um, the impact of ammonia. And um, you know, 20 years ago, I don't remember measuring ammonia ever, whereas you know, it's not that uncommon in a confused or uh, unwell patient that you're going to be looking at ammonia. We've got a very nice paper about that, Phil. Do you want to talk us through yeah, that? Yes, so this is Elaine Murphy from the Charles Dent uh, Unit in London. So this is ammonia, what adult neurologists should know. Of course, the paediatric neurologists will know all about this anyway. I, I feel this is practical neurology at its best, actually. It's science in practice. So she goes through, the team really goes through the clinical features of uh, high ammonia level, which is either nothing if it slowly rises or uh, or can be encephalopathy and seizures if it's risen rapidly. Um, and there are um, helpful diagrams of the science behind this, but essentially uh, ammonia is useful to the body in, in uh, uh, building amino acids and so forth, but is uh, for 90% of it is a waste product. And uh, it's only the liver that metabolizes it to the urea. And so if the liver is diseased, then the ammonia level will rise. And this is particularly likely if there's underlying uh, biochemical problems such as uh, ornithine transcarbamylase, OTC deficiency. So we're, we're going to see this occasionally in neurology, um, particularly in people taking valparate or carbamazepine, incidentally, which uh, uh, inhibit the breakdown of ammonia to urea in the liver. Um, Mostly, a slightly raised level won't matter, but uh, in the context of uh, acute liver disease, it will go high. So uh, we're taken through the various treatments of this, the stages of it. Firstly, to reverse the catabolic state. Secondly, to remove the ammonia if you can. 
And thirdly, but it's um, that, that's through hemodialysis. But thirdly, uh, in specialist units to scavenge the uh, the excess nitrogen. And but this is something that is best not delayed. We, we hear that it's uh, uh, important to start the low protein, high glucose diet um, where the patient is, and not think about transferring the patient and, unless it becomes very complex. It's it's that would just waste time. Uh, the other things. Uh, include a very practical guide uh, such as how to check the uh, ammonia so um, the blood sample should be in a patient preferably fasted beforehand taken without a tourniquet or with without muscle contraction pre-chilled container taken on ice to the lab all this sort of thing highly useful so um, it, it's something that um, although I've been doing this job for a long time in neurology, you know, it's something I, I perhaps only really understood the ammonia uh, uh, situation much more easily anyway, after having read reading this paper. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I think this is, this is what uh, uh, the, the, the journal can, can really offer is, is explaining science in a practical way like um, uh, Elaine Murphy and her team have done on this paper. And I think the other thing with ammonia is to remember it. Um, you know, it, it's something which makes people confused and, and oftentimes um, it isn't the thing that you've come to first. There are patients in some, got some sort of encephalopathy. You're not sure which one it is. The ammonia, as you say, is quite a tricky thing to test. So you have to, to actually make sure you've got the ice and you can send it all off and all this kind of stuff. And, and, but if you don't think about it, you won't recognise it. If you don't recognise it, you can't treat it. So it's one of those situations where, as you rightly say, this is a very useful paper from that point of view. Yeah, and a great segue in terms of if you don't think of it, you'll never diagnose it. This paper from Simon Hammonds on, on a subject that he is the true expert of, and so we are so pleased you wrote this for us. Do you want to yes. tell us about Simon's paper? So, well, so Simon Hammonds has written a very nice paper on this. We were discussing how we think we should pronounce it. We think it's meningi, um, is the abbreviation for the mitochondrial neurogastrointestinal encephalopathy disease. Um, uh, nobody says the whole thing, but it always gets abbreviated to M-N-G-I-E, meningi. Uh, and it is one of those situations which he recognises and says it, it, it is frequently very delayed in diagnosis. And that's partly because whilst it's fairly classical, it has um, a series of really quite disparate elements that he, he refers to as the classical uh, or uh, clinical tetrad of gut motility, which obviously most of us don't spend much time thinking about, but patients will sometimes be misdiagnosed as having anorexia or other gastrointestinal disturbances. Uh, in association with a progressive external ophthalmoplegia, which can take some time to come along, a demyelinating neuropathy, which is often not that dramatic. I mean, he's got some very nice illustrations of the uh, wasting you can get distally. Um, and then along with a very dramatic series of changes that you can see on an MRI scan of the brain, a leukoencephalopathy, which is normally asymptomatic. So you've got this really very characteristic group of things, which the moment you sort of see them all presented, and if you were at a clinical meeting and all four come up, you'd go, well, I know just what this is. But actually when you're seeing the patient in the clinic or, or quite possibly as a ward referral where um, the gastroenterologists have said, you know, is there anything going on here or whatever? Um, it might be harder to put the elements together. And uh, I think that it's important to try and make this diagnosis because whilst at the moment there aren't good treatments, Simon does mention that there are some extremely promising and interesting 
um, treatments on the horizon, really, rather than in reality. In essence, trying to get around the metabolic problem, um, liver transplants, bone marrow transplants, all kinds of different things. The case of which has not yet been proven, but if, if the patients are found, and particularly if they're diagnosed early, then if this becomes something that is a reality, then there'll be more patients in a position to benefit. So I think a really nice paper. Yeah, and, and as you say, for most people, it, it's, it's actually a poor prognosis, sadly, and a poor life expectancy, quite a sad condition. Uh, mitochondrial, but nevertheless autosomal dominant, um, and some promising treatments on the on the horizon. But um, uh, re yeah, re really clear paper, and uh, I, I think that uh, uh, this is you know, d delineated a an, an important condition that we we really shouldn't miss. But uh, uh, it's going to present not necessarily first to the neurologist. So this is obviously a, um, a rare disease that exists. So what about our editorial, which deals with a rare disease that maybe doesn't exist? Yeah, so um, Arvind Chandratheva from University College London has teamed up with Dave Waring and Diego Kasky and uh, given us a very nice editorial on vertebrobasilar insufficiency. And their title is uh, A Term That Should Be Retired. Um, this term actually is 66 years old, so maybe it should be uh, retired. It was born in 1955 when first described. Um, and uh, maybe along the way, I might have been have tempted to have diagnosed this, but uh, as soon as we heard all of the explanation of benign, of uh, paroxysmal positioning vertigo in the late 1980s and 90s, then uh, really that explains almost every case of head movement and neck movement provoking uh, vertigo. So um, the point that they make, of course, is that uh, if you hear of head provoked vertigo, it's almost always going to be uh, BPPV and not vertebrobasilar insufficiency. Just as well, really, because if it, if it were truly vertebrobasilar insufficiency, which is a, a posterior circulation TIA, the prognosis would be very poor indeed, and uh, the, it would be a, a neurological emergency uh, to prevent brainstem stroke. So I, I think they, they've done a good job here. They, they've uh, highlighted the problem, and uh, I, I hope after this that we will uh, never again make this diagnosis, though I, I think actually there's still a reason just to think about it occasionally because it's so serious were it, were it really to exist. I think it's a nice example of a condition which is um, so attractive in in theory that you feel it should exist in practice. You know, the idea that you can pinch your blood vessel by moving your neck and so on. And um, obviously, it just shows that you need to test things in reality rather than in theory. Um, uh, and uh, I think retirement is due. <laughs> retirement is due. <laughs> You know, one of the things I, I've learned from doing these podcasts, uh, Gary, is that uh, when I edit the papers, I sort of don't really see the wood for the trees and I look and see the words and edit. And it's only when I had to prepare for a podcast like this that I properly read them. So it's done me a lot of good. I've learned a lot as well through having actually to read these, these papers and to appreciate how good they really are. Not just that the full stops are in the right place and that uh, the figures are uh, big enough and properly labeled and that sort of thing, which is uh, my normal focus. So uh, uh, I'm finding this a very useful exercise for my clinical knowledge.
Yeah, well, though, I think, Phil, to be fair, the sequence of events is not quite as you described, because obviously at our first reading, we actually see the merits of the paper. And it's only as we go through it and edit it that you rather lose sight of that. And then it's very nice to come back to the finally polished version and to really fully appreciate the merit that we saw in the first place. So I think you're undermining your reading your approach. Anyway, it's, it's been a, a useful canter through the, uh, the February issue. It, it's a great issue. And uh, I, I know there's a lot there, a lot of variety there. I, I hope that uh, uh, you, you'll read this and enjoy it and go on the website and see some of these great videos about the gone injection and so forth. It's, it's, it's well worth a look. And we've got lots of really interesting little papers, you know, odd cases with particular points and so on that we've not mentioned, which uh, I think often peak interest in a way uh, that the bigger reviews uh, perhaps don't quite. So uh, definitely read the, read the journal. Um, Charles Waller, the original founder, was always very keen that people should read it in the bath for some strange reason. But um, uh, we're happy regardless of where you read it. Yeah, and I should actually say, um, just thinking of Charles Waller, he, he once said, if you wanted to uh, hide something from someone, you should publish it, he said, in brain. Well, what we've done in our uh, uh, advert for a, uh, uh, for a Twitter person is to hide it within our editorial at the beginning of the journal, which um, we are not sure how many of you actually read. But if you read it, then the second last paragraph has a little advert in there, only for the most keen and conscientious PN reader. So uh, we are on the lookout for a, uh, a social media person to help us in, in practical neurology. So um, if, if you're interested, please apply. And we're reasonably confident the field will be narrow. <laughs> And on that note, we'll speak to you uh, in time for the April issue. Thank you. Goodbye. Cheerio.